God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The title of this sermon is The True Power of Faith, Part 2. We did Part 1 a few weeks ago, so we're picking up. The context is Moses has come to God here who takes the form of this burning bush, this fire within this bush. We saw last time that this displays the aseity of God, the self-sustaining power of God, that he has life in himself. So God is introducing himself personally to Moses and to us as this great God who is not dependent on anybody or anything else. But this great God has come down and has heard the cries of his people and desires to save them. And he desires to use this man Moses to accomplish that deliverance, that salvation. I desire this morning, church, that you would trust God more today. That your trust in, in God would grow stronger as a result of what is said this morning. I want you to imagine with me two people board on a plane. One person has been on a, a plane numerous times. This person is a, a business flyer. This is what he does. He flies from location to location all around the country for business, and this is just a normal part of his commute almost. Another person boards that same plane, but has never been on a plane before, and has some fear and intrepidation about, about what's about to happen. Are we going to get there to our destination? I hope so. Both of them get on the plane. Both of them are in the plane as a plane begins to fly and soar through the air. Both people arrive at their destination eventually. Both people get off the plane and go on about their lives. But what got them to their destination safely? Was it their faith in the pilot? Was it their trust in the pilot? Was it the amount of trust that they had upon that person that was flying the plane? Or maybe the crew? Or maybe the plane itself? Did they, did they inspect the plane's engines and it was up to their standards? And so they were convinced that they can trust this plane? Or was it the plane itself that got them to their destination safely? Was it the pilot in the cockpit flying the plane that got them there safely? Which one was it? Was it the size of their faith or the object of their faith? See, the size of their faith was different. Right, One person was used to this, was accustomed to trusting the pilot, trusting the plane. The other one was not accustomed to this. Their faith was, 
was small and even shaky, you could say. But it wasn't the amount of their faith, but rather the object of their faith, the plane, the pilot that kept them safe. You see, saving faith is not a specific level of psychological certainty. That's not what faith is. Faith is simply trusting God's ability to do what he has promised. The same way it was for those two people on that plane is the same way for us. That is that the power, the true power of faith does not lie in how much you have of it, but rather where your faith is placed, the object of your faith. So this morning, I desire that you would believe Him alone, that you would believe that He is Yahweh, and that you would believe that He is enough. Believe in God alone, believe He is Yahweh, and believe that He is enough. First of all, you must believe in God alone. You must, you must believe Him alone. Verse 10 and 11. This is after verse 9, of course. Nine, or 10 comes after 9. But um, God in verse 9 is telling Moses, Behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. God has this grand plan for his people, that he would deliver them from the oppression and the tyranny of Egypt, and Pharaoh at the helm. But he wants to accomplish this plan through Moses. And he says that in verse 10. Therefore, because this is what I want to do, because I care for my people and I desire to deliver them, therefore, come now, I'm going to send you. Now at first, Moses is hesitant to obey. Moses says to God in verse 11, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? You see, Moses knew a little bit about himself. He knew that he was a nobody. That's, that's what the question, who am I, means. Don't you know who I am? I know who I am. I'm a nobody. Moses was an outcast. He was actually a fugitive of Egypt. He was the hated rival of Pharaoh. He was even rejected by his own people. Remember when he tried to uh, resolve a conflict between two of his Hebrew brethren. They said, who are you? Who made you judge? 
Even his own people rejected him. He was an outsider wherever he was. Born a Hebrew, raised an Egyptian. So he didn't have a home in Egypt. He didn't have a home amongst his own people. Acts 7.35 speaks about Moses. He says that this Moses is the one whom they disowned. That is the Israelites, the Hebrews. They disowned this man. And, and, and it goes on to say that the way that we know that they disowned him was when they said, who made you a ruler and a judge? This one whom they disowned is the very one that God has chosen to send to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of God, it says in Acts 7.35. This one, this loser, this crooked stick, this runt of the litter, this one with so many shortcomings, this one with so many doubts about himself, so many self-accusations. You could hear his, his own conscience crying out against him. You don't deserve this. God won't use you. He has the wrong person. Now, verse 12 is God's answer to that kind of doubt. And he said, that is God, God said, certainly... I will be with you. Certainly, I will be with you. Notice that the answer that God gives to Moses has nothing to do with Moses. Certainly, I will be with you, he says. Pre-incarnate Christ here is pointing to himself as the one who would accomplish this mission. He points to God as the one who would accomplish God's plans. Look, look, what, look at the wording that he uses. Certainly, I will be with you. Certainty of the promises of God lie in God, not in you, Christian. God points to himself as the assurity that this great task, that he will deliver his people out of Egypt and bring him to that mountain to worship him, the certainty of that task comes from God's presence. Notice he says, I will be with you. Certainly I will be with you. If I am with you, this will get done. I will see to it myself, he says. God's presence is promised. His ability is what provides the, the, the foundation of this reality. His power, his sovereignty. Friend, you need to believe in him alone, not in yourself, because the true power of faith lies in its object. If you have faith in yourself, you will fail. You will be severely disappointed, my friend. Trust me, I've tried it. Don't believe in yourself. That is a lie of the world. 
Rather, believe God alone. He will accomplish his purposes. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Notice how there's no one like him. Declaring the end from the beginning. So he is over here at the beginning of things, at the beginning of time, we could say, and he looks forward to the end of time and he determines when and where and what will happen at the end of time from the beginning. He calls his shot, you could say. <laughs> Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. If it's part of God's plan, it's done. That's why in Romans 8, where it says those whom he has predestined, right? He has called and justified and then glorified already. But we're on this side of glorification. We're on this side of heaven. So how can you speak of our future glorification as something past tense, something already done? Because when he plans it, he will do it. Christian, he has planned your glorification. He has planned you to be with him in his presence at the end. And it will happen because that's the plan. Notice that the sign that God gives, the, the proof is not immediate, actually. He says in verse 12, certainly I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. So here will be, here's the proof that I'm the one sending you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you all shall worship God at this mountain. Now, that sign was future, right? Here's the sign. Here's the proof, Moses. Here's the confidence that, that you can have. Let me, let me prove it to you that, that what I say will happen and that I want to really use you, even you, to do this. When you finally deliver my people, when I finally take them out of Egypt, you will all be there together worshiping at this mountain. The proof, the sign, the validation of God's promise is not immediate here. You see, God required Moses to exercise faith. Faith until Israel was delivered and then at the foot of that mountain worshiping God. Friend, you need to believe him and believe him alone. Don't believe what your eyes can see only, but believe his promises. Moses was called here to just believe God. And the certainty of God's promises is the promise itself. 
Friend, you cannot save yourself. If you don't know the Lord this morning, you cannot save yourself. You can't, there is no 12-step program in the church. There is no self-help program or ministry in the church. That has no place here. Because if we try and help ourselves, the end is destruction. The end is the ruin of sin in your life. Don't try and save yourself. Because like Moses, you too are a fugitive. You are a fugitive from God's judgment. And he's coming for you. Because you're a sinner, you see. Friend, you're a sinner in the eyes of the holy God. You are an outcast of God's presence. You are an enemy of God, the ruler and sustainer of the universe. You are outside of his family. You are spiritually poor. That is, you're spiritually bankrupt. You have no no currency with which you can buy God's favor for yourself. You are spiritually dead, blind, impure, stained, and vile. Don't try to help yourself. Don't trust yourself. Trust in God alone. How can you be acceptable to God then if it's so bad? How can you ever hope to be in heaven with Him? Well, it's not going to be in anything you do, but only by faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. That God took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, and died your death, suffering God's judgment for your sin, and rose from the dead three days later. Believe Him. Believe that He did that for you. Don't just assent or mentally agree with the the historicity, the, the historical fact that Jesus was a person who lived 2,000 years ago. No, that's not enough. You have to believe that he is God and that he died in your place for your sins. It has to be personal. For us as New Testament believers, instead of pointing forward to a future accomplishment of God's salvation for our surety, Rather, we point back to a past act of Jesus Christ where our salvation was accomplished there at the cross. You were delivered from the power and the penalty and the guilt of sin there at the cross. So rather than looking forward, we look back at the salvation already accomplished. Believe Him alone, not yourself, because the true power of faith lies in its object. You must trust in God's ability to do what He has promised. That's what faith is. He has promised to cleanse you from your sin and to bring you safely to heaven. Trust Him. Secondly, Believe that he is Yahweh. Verse 13. Moses, then Moses said to God, 
Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? You see, the the Hebrews at this point in their national history, they had essentially forgotten God. Ezekiel, turn with me please to Ezekiel. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Ezekiel chapter 20. The Hebrews had had uh, uh, abandoned the promises of God, the, the loyalty to their God, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After generations had gone by, that testimony had lost its, its power. That testimony had lost its vitality in the life of the nation Israel. And so you had this generation, by the time it's Moses' generation, you had this generation of idolaters in Egypt. Ex, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning in verse 9, it says, And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, here's what God said to them. We don't have this recorded in Exodus, necessarily, but here is what God said to them. Cast away, verse 7, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Verse 8. But they rebelled. They rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that I should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. You see what he's saying? He's, he's reminding his people, generations later, that when I saved you from Egypt, you were an idolatrous people. And I told you back then, and I'm telling you the same thing now, get rid of the idols. That's why Moses said in Exodus 3, they may say to me, what is his name? The people that Moses were commissioned to save were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping pagan idols. See, in Egypt, they were so used to having a god of the river, a god of the sky, a a god of human breath, of human life, a god of the livestock, a god of the sun, a god of the moon, and so on. That's why Moses asked, well, which one are you? 
What are you God of? Now, this name, when he says, what is your name? What's your name, God? You see, the name, especially in the Old Testament, the name of a person was intrinsically tied to their identity or their origin. Just for example, in chapter 2 of Exodus, chapter 2, verse 10, says, speaking of Moses, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Moses in Hebrew sounded like that, like the, the act of somebody drawing them out of water, it is very close to the name Moses. Same thing with Moses' son. In chapter 2, verse 22, she gave birth to a son, and he, Moses, named him his son Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Same thing. That phrase, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, sounds very much like Goshen. You see, name was tied to identity. It was tied to origin, nature. So when he's asking, when Moses asks, what's your name? He's not just asking for Bob. Right? That's not what he's asking. He's, who are you? What are you? Where are you from? That's the question that God answers with in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, that is in Hebrew, Yahweh has sent me to you. That's my name, Yahweh. God names himself as I am who I am. He does not say, well, I'm the God of this mountain. He could have said that, right? I'm here at this mountain. This is where you meet me. And I'm sending you to go get my people and bring them back to this mountain. So I'm the God of this mountain. No. He's not the God of this region. He's not the God of the sky or the land or just the stars. He's, he is not like those false gods of Egypt. That's what he's saying. And, and what's interesting is that as the ten plagues that are to follow, God will be demonstrating his power and authority over those false gods, proving them to be figments of man's imagination. And he will be continually introducing himself as the great I am, more and more so as he, as it were, uh, defeats the false gods of Egypt. This name, Yahweh, I am. Yes, it's okay to say Yahweh. In our English translations, in your Bible, if you've read the Old Testament, and I hope that you have, and I hope that you will continue to do so, you might notice that when it speaks of the Lord... A lot of times, actually, in the Old Testament, it will have uh, all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. 
That name is Yahweh. They simply translate Yahweh to Lord because that is what the Old Testament Hebrews did. They, they set apart that specific name, those, those syllables, as holy and, and too pure for man to just speak. And so they devised this, this clever uh, way of getting around uh, calling Yahweh Yahweh by using words like Adonai and Jehovah. So, every time that you see those capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, there's actually a new translation that's out that actually spells out Yahweh. I think that's fine. We don't need to get hung up on that. That's just a tradition that's not biblically warranted to translate it that way. Nonetheless, when we think about the, the I am, right? When we think about Yahweh, God as I am, this is, this, is, this is holy ground, much like it was for Moses. This is, this is an immense subject. When, when Moses asks God, what's your name? And he replies, I am. Basically, all of theology proper, theology proper is, is that study of doctrine that, that focuses on the nature and the character of God all of his attributes, all of theology proper is bound up in that name, I am. He is saying, I am all of that. God answers with a name that if we were to try and fully describe, it would take up all the ink in the world. All of the paper, all the printer toner, even all of the digital storage that has been created by man. Think of that. The, the, the vast amount of storage and data that you can store in, in the cloud, in all of the clouds of all the companies, in all of the hard drives of all the computers. The greatness of God is greater than that. You see, God's nature is not limited to one characteristic. That's why he doesn't say, I am good. I am gracious. No, he says, I am. I, I am not just one of those things. And people today try and say, well, God is love. Yes, he is. But he's a whole lot of other things too. Yahweh is the present, active, tense, you can understand it that way, uh, of the verb to be. He just is. This points to his eternality, that he has no beginning and no end. He always is. You go to any period, any era of history, and God is there. As I am. You go to the very beginning of time, to the very end of time, God is I am, and He is there. 
This also, the fact that he is, points to the fact that we have looked at before with this burning bush, that he is self-sustaining. He just is. He is not reliant on anybody or anything else. He just simply is. In and of himself, he is God. Not only this, but it points to the past, present, and the future state of this perfect existence. He is not in the state of becoming He already fully, eternally, perfectly is. If that doesn't hurt your brain, I don't know what will. He always is, and he always is fully. His aseity, as we've learned about. His glory. His jealousy. His omnipresence. His truthfulness. His beauty. His goodness, His knowledge, peace, His perfection, His blessedness, His holiness, His love, His unity, His will, His eternity, His immutability, His mercy, His righteousness, His wisdom, His freedom, His omnipotence, His wrath, and His grace, all perfectly, fully, eternally is. All at the same time, too. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time being happy and sad at the same time. God is. His ways are not our ways. All that is good and perfect and admirable in the universe is found in God. God possesses it all perfectly. He is absolutely independent, self-sufficient. God is eternal and unchanging at any point in time or even before the creation of time. God simply is. There is no coming to be with him. There is no ceasing to be with him because he perfectly is. Our God is the ever-living, ever-being God who cannot be described in any other way than I am. You need to believe that He is Yahweh. You see, because the true power of faith lies in its object. So you want to have power behind your faith? Place your faith on Yahweh and nobody else. Believe that He is. You must trust in God's ability to do what He has promised. Christian, in the context here, He's talking to Moses. And what He's trying to do, He's trying to instill certainty and a spine in Moses. This spineless man. Moses is doubting if God can really do this through him. Christian, is that you? Do you feel like that runt of the litter? That outcast? Do you feel like that one who has failed too many times where God can't use him anymore? Do you feel like that one who doesn't know enough that God can't use or isn't eloquent or isn't nice enough? Whatever your shortcoming might be, 
Moses, how'd you be? And rather than looking at yourself for God's ability to use you in his kingdom, look to him. He is the I am. Therefore, he can use you. Third, believe that he is enough. Believe he is enough. What does this mean that God is I am? We we could say we hardly scratch the surface to this point. Our minds can't fully wrap around the great I am, this this Yahweh God. But we have a little help. God wants us to know him. And the clearest revelation of God is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, let's turn to John 8. John chapter 8, new in the New Testament. What does it really mean for God to be I am? Well, first we need to establish that Jesus is the I am. So in John chapter 8, just to catch you up to speed, Jesus is in the middle of a heated discussion with the Jews, specifically the leaders of the Jews. In verse 37, and in verse 38, Jesus was telling them that he spoke only what the Father gave to him. And the reason that they were really rejecting Jesus' words was because their father was not really Abraham, but rather the devil, he says in verse 40 to 44. Of course, they didn't like that. They didn't appreciate that statement about them. So they insult him, claiming in verse 48 that Jesus' father was immoral, also that he was born of fornication, that Jesus was a Samaritan, somebody who was despised by the Jews, and they even said that Jesus was demon-possessed. Now, Jesus, of course, answered all of that hatred with love. In verse 51, saying that if they would only believe his words, that they too could have eternal life, the gift of God. He's still so patient with them. The Jews basically laugh at this claim that Jesus can give eternal life. Verse 52 and 53, basically saying, Abraham died, the prophets died. What makes, what, what makes you, you know, something great? Who do you make yourself out to be? Verse 54, I'm not asking, Christ says, I'm not asking. I'm not, excuse me, I'm not making myself out to be anything. I'm not seeking my own glory. The Father is the one who glorifies me. I'm just telling you what he wants to be said. Verse 55 and 56, Christ says, I know the Father in a, in a way that is unlike anything else. He is my Father. You see, he's pointing to his deity. If I am his son and he is my Father, we have the same nature. Because a human father doesn't produce a, uh, a, a dog for a child. It produces another human child, right? They share the same nature. That's what he's getting at, but they're not getting it. 
Jesus says, if, I, if he were to deny his, his deity, his relationship to the Father as his son, he would be lying. He's just saying, I'm just telling you the truth. You should be rejoicing that your Messiah is here, he says. Your father Abraham rejoiced when he learned about me. Verse 56. John 50, excuse me, John 8, verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, the Jews ridicule him. They think he's a crazy, he's a madman. Verse 57, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? What are you talking about? What are you talking about, Jesus? How could a 30-something-year-old man have been around thousands of years ago when Abraham was alive? You're crazy. Jesus' answer is stunning. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Notice he doesn't say, I was alive before Abraham was born. He doesn't say, I was born before Abraham was born. He says explicitly, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was. The Greek is, I am. This is the exact same wording as the Greek translation of Exodus 3. The Jews, they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that he was saying that he is that same God in the midst of that bush. He is Yahweh. Christ is Yahweh. They knew that he was saying this. That's why they tried to kill him. Verse 9. Therefore, because he said, I am, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And they weren't going to just give him a few bruises. That's not what they do when they pick up stones to stone somebody. They're trying to kill the man. Jesus is the I am. And in our understanding of Christ and his life and ministry, we know that Jesus uses this phrase, I am, throughout his ministry, in fact, explicitly here. But throughout his ministry, he says, for example, John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What does it mean for him to be the I am? He is the God who sustains life, who satisfies the soul. He's not talking about physical bread. He's talking about the bread for the soul. He is the bread of life. He gives life, sustains life, and satisfies your life of your soul. For all who would come to him, friend, you have to believe that this God is enough. He's the bread of life. In John 8, in John 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
He is the light of the world. That means that he is the God who gives light in a dark world. What does that mean? He gives understanding to those who do not have it. Specifically, enabling us to see God in all of his glory so that we might worship him. He is the light of the world. He is the light to your path. And he is the light so that you can see him and you can see God in all of his glory and rightly worship him. That means that without Christ in your life, it is a dark place. You have no light. You cannot see reality. You cannot see God for who he truly is. If you don't have the light, all you have is darkness. Friend, you need to believe that Christ is enough. He is all that you need for life and godliness. John 10, John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the gate for the sheep and the good shepherd. This means that he, Jesus Christ, Yahweh, is the one who opens the way to God, being the gate. He opens the way to God, and as the shepherd of the sheep, he leads us to him. As our shepherd, Jesus Christ cares for his people. That's what a shepherd does. Think about a shepherd. He feeds his sheep. He nurtures his sheep. He leads his sheep. He guides his sheep. He watches over the sheep at night. He protects the sheep. That is the ministry of Christ in your life, Christian. Believe that he is enough. Go to him to be fed, to be nurtured, to be led through this life, to be guided from from false paths that lead to destruction. Go to him and trust in him that he watches over your soul. And you don't have to worry about life. You don't have to worry about COVID. Can we get practical? You don't have to worry. You can be careful, but you don't got to worry. He watches over me. Even if I get it, he gave it to me. He protects us. He's your shepherd. In John 11, I love these. John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Oh, it's one of my favorite chapters in all of the scripture. John 10 and 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That means that Christ alone as God has life within himself. He says in John 5.26 that just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself because the Father begets the Son. Jesus has been given the authority to give life, both physical and spiritual. See, he is the life giver to your soul. He took you, a dead soul, 
and made you alive, didn't he? And he'll do that for you, friend. If you don't know him this morning, he can take your dead soul and give you life. You will begin to live. Oh, would you come to Christ today and begin to live today. Start your life now. Because until you come to Christ, you haven't really begun living. Let me tell you. Christ gives life to the spiritually dead. And he is the end of the fear of death because he is the resurrection. He is the resurrection. He came to abolish the fear of death, it says in Hebrews. So we ought not to be afraid. We ought not to cower. People should see the difference in our life. When trials come, when sickness comes, when cancer comes, when a loved one dies, there should be a difference for us in that experience because we have, lot, we have Christ as our resurrection. Friend, you need to believe that Christ is enough. John chapter 14 Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is a whole nother sermon. But it says, he says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who provides the way to God, the truth of God, and the life of God. But not just that he provides the way to God. Or the truth of God. He doesn't just dispense the truth of God. He doesn't just dole out the life of God and show us the way to God. No, what does he say? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's who he is. He is the way to God. He doesn't just show you it. It is him. Come to him. You want to come to God? You come to Christ. He is the truth. He is truth. You want to know what truth is? You want to know what the reality is? You want to know what the true headlines of the newspaper are? You go to Christ. He is the life. He is the life. That is eternal, true, abundant. Life, the life par excellence. He is, there is no other life outside of him. So come to him and let him live in you because he is the life. Lastly, John 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine. This means that he is the God who is the source of your vitality and your strength through your Christian life. Jesus Christ is the constant, daily source of spiritual sustenance. He's all you need, friend. Why are you going somewhere else? Why are you delighting in other things, Christian? Have you forgotten your first love? You need to believe that He is enough. You need to believe that if I am just abiding in Christ, that is, sitting at his feet, listening to his teachings, and obeying his commands, living for him and with him, if I am abiding in Christ, 
I have all I need. I don't need Disney Plus to make me happy. I don't need Netflix to make me happy. I don't need that man or that woman to make me happy. I don't need a child to make me happy. I don't need health to make me happy. I don't need a, a uh, what is it, six-figure salary to be happy. I don't need that stuff. If I have Christ, I am connected to the true vine. And he's all I need. You must trust, Christian, you must trust in God's ability to do what he's promised, to be the bread for you, to be your light, to be your gate, to be your shepherd, to be your way, your truth, and your life, to be your vine. Trust him. He is Yahweh. And there's nobody like our God. So when you get on a plane, what gets you to your destination? Is it your faith? Is it your trust in the pilot or the plane? Or is it the pilot? You might get on that plane with fear and worry and hesitation even. But friend, you've just got to get on the plane. That's the point. Get on the plane. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. Do you have it? Do you have a mustard seed, a, a, a tiny morsel of faith? That's all you need. He'll take it from there. You see? You must believe in this one, Jesus Christ. You must believe in him for your salvation, friend, because you can't save yourself. You have to come to him. It is this Christ who surely sees the affliction that you are going through, your grief, your heartache, the, the destruction that sin has caused in your life. He sees it. He gives heed to your cries. He knows the tyranny of sin in your life. He is aware of your sufferings. And it is this God, this Yahweh who came down and condescended to become man, walked among us, died under God's judgment in your place, and was raised to life so that we might have life in him. Believe in him. The true power of faith lies in God alone. So trust him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Oh, God, forgive us for idolizing our fears and our anxieties. Forgive us for idolizing other entertainments, other pleasures. Forgive us, Lord, for our waywardness of heart and mind. Draw us back to yourself. May you be big in our eyes, God. May the troubles of this world grow faintly dim. Lord, we pray that you would turn on the light for that lost soul this morning. I pray that that one who has been running from you would finally turn around and come to you today. And they would just trust. Just trust you. Hand it over. Hand over the steering wheel. Sit down in the chair. Let their full weight fall back into your arms, God. May they experience you catching them and carrying them to your presence. We thank you, Lord, for doing that in our lives. Oh, you're sweet.
You're so good. The one who is high and lifted up, lofty and exalted, sitting on his throne is meek, lowly, patient, long-suffering. We thank you, God. We worship you. Help us to sing now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.